Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Turn with me real quick and just I want to read one passage and this isn't the passage I'm going to preach out of but I want to touch on something. Luke chapter 11 verse 24. Luke chapter 11 verse 24. We're talking about emotional and and relational health this morning. And uh, the reason we're doing this is that the container which holds the, the move of God, the, you know, we pray for revival. Well, the container that holds revival are the relationships within the church, not the church itself in the sense of an organization or a building, but it's the relation, the human relationships are what sustain a move of God. And so what the enemy does is he sabotages a move of God. He undermines our prayers by our relationships. I know, now I'm meddling. We need to understand that our relationships are the avenue through which the enemy tries to access our life. I said last week, and it's not some, I've said this before, that much of what we refer to as demonic oppression or the enemy, oh, I'm under this oppression, is often the fruit of unhealthy or dysfunctional relationships. It's, it's us not knowing how to operate in relationships in a healthy way. And that doesn't negate the existence or the activity of the enemy. I'm, I'm not saying that the enemy isn't involved. I'm just defining his entry point. Often he enters through unhealthy dynamics in our relationships. So we have got to learn to do relationships in a healthy way. And so, uh, real quick here, we're going to touch on this principle, and then I want to get into some other passages. Uh, I want to give you some scriptural basis for what I just said, lest you think I made that up. Luke 11, verse 24 through 26. Listen to what it says. This is Jesus' teaching. Verse 24, when, the, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, I'm reading in the NIV, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding, it, finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So Jesus is speaking about an individual life, a person. He says that in verse 26. He comes and he looks into the windows of a person. He's looking to see if there's any room. He goes to his former dwelling place, his house. And he finds it swept clean and put in order, but it's empty. And he looks into that place. When, it, when an evil spirit, what he's talking about is when an evil spirit is driven from a person's life. And now let me just pause there. We get these, these theologies that we say again and again and again, but aren't really rooted in scripture. We use this terminology, demon possessed, and, can, and then we start saying, well, a person can't be possessed if they're you know, if, if they belong to Jesus, how can they be possessed by the enemy? Well, the problem with that is that is an English translation and a very poor one of a Greek word that is simply, uh, the, a better translation would be demonized. What it means is that somebody is being influenced by a demonic entity. They are a believer or an unbeliever. And the reason we know that a believer can have demonic problems is that Paul says, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against these principalities and powers, these entities. We know that Jesus, when he said healing is the children's bread, he was referring to healing of a demonic a demonization. Somebody was, there, there was this little girl that was demonized and Jesus said, healing is the children's bread. So deliverance is for the believer. What good does it do to deliver an unbeliever of the demonic when they are under the power of the evil one in the first place? And so when we use this terminology of demon possession, they would say, well, a, a Christian can't be possessed. He can only be oppressed or suppressed or compressed or impressed. You know, all those words are irrelevant because it doesn't really deal with the original text. The fact is that a Christian can be influenced by a demonic entity to various levels. And we don't want that. And so what we need to do is shut the access to that, to the enemy having access into our life. One of the primary accesses that the enemy would have in our life is Bitterness, unforgiveness. Jesus is very clear that if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. That if you don't forgive, Matthew 18, there's a, a man who, the unmerciful servant, he was turned over to the tormentors. 
The demonic is the tormentor. You open the door to torment. Uh, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't give the enemy a foothold. Or another translation is ground. It's It's a military term. You give him space in your life and the foothold becomes a stronghold and the enemy afflicts your life. So that's one avenue. There's also sexual immorality. You can open yourself up to demonic demonic, uh, oppression or demonic infiltration into your life through uh, sexual immorality. And frankly, the more unnatural or the more perverted that is, the more likely you are to have demonic oppression. You can also, by opening yourself up to the occult, looking to the kingdom of darkness for that which you should only look to the kingdom of God for. Power, guidance, all those things, whether it's Ouija boards or, uh, you know, horoscopes and all that, you're, you're looking to the demonic realm and you're putting a welcome mat out in front of your soul and saying, welcome, I want your input in my life. And in so doing, it's a package deal. You get their input, but you also get their oppression. So we need to deal with those things. But another often overlooked avenue of demonic inroad into our life is our relationships. Because if we don't understand how to do relationships right, we can invite the business, the the unresolved issues of someone else to begin to infiltrate our life. And we're having to deal not only with our stuff, but their stuff. And the enemy will ride in on that. And Jesus implies that in this passage we just read. The word house is oikos in the Greek. It's like the Greek yogurt. He's not talking about yogurt. Uh, yogurt is not an avenue for the enemy to get into your life. Even though you may not like yogurt, no, you should eat it. It's good for you. But the word yogurt literally means uh, it, it, not just house but household, and it even means relationships. As a matter of fact, missiologists, those that study missions and, and the mission of the church, and they, they approach the scriptures from that valid perspective of how do we reach the world uh, from a missiological perspective, they'll often talk about what is your oikos and are you stewarding your oikos? What they mean is are you, take, are you te- keeping track of your relationships? Are you use, leveraging your relationships for the kingdom of God and the advancement of the kingdom of God and to lead others into the kingdom? Your oikos. And Jesus uses that same term and he said the enemy will look into your oikos, his oikos, and say is there still room in this This life for me is going to come back to that person. The enemy will look into the relational structure, the relational dynamics of your life and see if there's another inroad. Now, we don't have time to get into all of this this morning, but it suffice it to say this. That when the enemy is driven from your life, you have a time where you can begin to restructure the interior life of your your household, your relationships. When the enemy comes back, I want him to look in the windows and say, whoa, I don't even recognize this place. This dude's moved walls around. The kitchen's not where it used to be. I, I, I wouldn't even know how to, the, the furniture, I'd be tripping over. I, I'm going to go find a, a, the place that's easier to get in and not try to infiltrate this guy's life because he is changed. Now, this is another little subject we're not going to get into. We've talked about this before, but we'll probably deal with this in the coming weeks, that we need to understand that the last frontier of transformation, the last manifestation of the change in your life, when you meet Jesus and you change, the last thing to change with your change, the last uh, phase of change is your relationships. In other words, what I mean by that is this. You aren't really changed until the people that know you accommodate to the changed you. You aren't really changed until they expect the new you to walk through the door. And as long as they are relating with you as the old you, the change is not complete. You say, well, that's not fair. That puts it on me. It is on you in the sense that you have to forge those relationships and restructure those things. And until that has happened, the final You haven't really nailed down the change in your life because the primary way the enemy is going to try to begin to infiltrate again and get you back into the old you is through your relationships. When I was with Teen Challenge, we started a a new, it was a new thing among Teen Challenges. We were the only Teen Challenge that had it. Matter of fact, Jennifer Rausch was was the one that ran this element of our program. We hired her to run this. It was called Wives Weekend because what we found is that guys would come into Teen Challenge, get radically saved, and they would be, man, God's really changing them. And they'd go back home on their past and they'd come, honey, I'm home. 
And all she knows is the old hymn. Now, it was her prayers that prayed him into the new hymn, but she hasn't got caught up yet, and she's still treating him as the old hymn. And what we found is that within a week being home, he was acting like the old hymn. Why? Because he was succumbing to this negative pressure, relational pressure, that was largely unconscious. She was treating him as the irresponsible man he used to be, and he was living up to her expectations. And so he needed to be prepared for that, and so did she. And so we developed a series of classes for wives to come in and realize that, and and we had one class that I tactlessly entitled for the wives, It Takes One to Marry One, a study in codependency. (laughs) I know, I was a little less tactful back then. uh, But what we were talking about is that our relationships are a mirror or a window into our emotional health. And really healthy people aren't attracted to really unhealthy people. Really well-adjusted people that are emotionally healthy aren't looking, I'm going to find a heroin addict to marry and just take them on as a project. No, that doesn't happen. May happen in fairy tales where little Cinderella that lives among the cinders is marries that Prince Charming that is all well adjusted and she lives happily ever after. But there ain't no happily ever after to that. There may be a happily after, but there's a lot of ever there that is necessary to, you know, painful change. And so we need to realize that the last frontier is those relationships. When I got saved, homeless alcoholic, really hurt my mom and dad, treated them. Terrible. And then I got radically saved and I called my dad and I said, Dad, I, I need, I got right with God. I need to get out, of, you know, I need to do something. He said, You're going to Teen Challenge. The Lord had already spoke to him that I was going to go. I said, Okay, I'll do it. I went to Teen Challenge. Then I came home for a pass. And then I went off to Bible school. And it was about two years into walking with Jesus. And I was sincere the day I got saved. About two, two and a half years, I was home from Bible school. I went out with some of my old friends, came back. I was preaching to them. I came home and my dad was up watching TV and I sat down. I said, how you doing, dad? And he said, you know, Dave, he said, it's just now that I don't hold my breath wondering if you're going to come through that door drunk. And for about 10 seconds, I was really hurt by that comment. I thought, dad, didn't you know I was sincere? And then I quickly realized I blew a lot of smoke in his face saying I was changed before. And I needed to prove it. And he needed to see longevity. And he needed to see the behavior. And I, I shouldn't get offended when he tr- would treat me. And he treated me very honoring. But we can't get offended when those around us don't believe in the change in us. And a lot of times it's unconscious. And they're treating us like the irresponsible person we were before we went to the altar and repented. And we show up at home. And, and everybody's not dancing and expecting the new us. We've got to prove that we're the new person. And we haven't really changed until that happens. And that's how you move the walls around in your oikos. Okay? You've got to move the walls around so that the other people in your life, they begin to reinforce the change by their faith in that change because you've proven yourself. And that's not wrong of them to have their doubts when you've blown smoke in their face many times. And a lot of times they don't even know how, it's it's not even a conscious thing, it's just they know their role. Matter of fact, a lot of times your transformation will put pressure on them and upset the apple cart and they don't even realize it. Okay, just before I get into the message, let me just say one more thing, okay? Some of you have heard me talk about this before. John Marquez, the guy that wrote Christ's Life that is now the ultimate journey, he used to use this illustration at Teen Challenge all the time about the canoe ride. He said, you know, you're, you're floating down the river of life as a child in your canoe. And all of a sudden, something traumatic happens on the left side of your canoe. Some kind of, some traumatic thing. And so you always lean to the right now because you're compensating for this woundedness in your life. So what do you do when you marry? You marry somebody that had something traumatic on the right side of their canoe, so they learn to the left, and you lean to the right, and your bentness fits together. And you think, wow, we're really healthy. We sit up, you know. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, your wife, who leans to the right, goes through the ultimate journey, goes through Christ's life, and gets touched by God. Or she goes to the altar, and the Lord touches her, and, and puts his finger on something in her life, and all of a sudden, she sits up a little bit. She's gotten a little healthier. Meanwhile, you're drinking river water. 
because she's sitting up and you're not. And there is this thing in us that says, wait a minute, wait a minute. You need to sit back. This wasn't the arrangement. I married you in the dysfunctional way. That's what I signed up for. I knew my role in that dysfunctional relationship. I don't know my role in this healthy one. And that is always, that's unconscious undertones in the relationship. So we've got to understand that, that we support the emotional healing in our, and the people that we're running with. And we can end up giving negative peer pressure to get them to revert back to the old way because it's more comfortable for us. I need to be married to someone who's dysfunctional so I can be the Messiah. Uh-oh, well, I'm really meddling now, aren't I? So we need, to, we need to begin to deal with those things. And the last frontier of that change is when the people closest to us begin to accommodate and treat us as the new you. And when they treat you as the new you, it's locked and loaded. You've established that. You are changed. And until they do, it's still in the process because the final frontier. And so the enemy, during, during that season of change, the, the spirit of God comes and begins to transform us, pushes the enemy out, and the enemy will go into the dry places. Don't live in the dry places, all right? Well, we, don't, well, we could preach on that. You need to be in a church where it rains a lot, okay? So the enemy doesn't come looking where you're at. He doesn't want anywhere, you won't get anywhere near that place. But he's going to come back and look in the windows of the oikos, your relationships and say, is there any room for me here? And you want him to find that no, they've been restructured and this place is filled. He can't get back in. Okay, so in light of that, I want to talk about three things. And this is, I'm going to take the grace of God this morning. Not that it doesn't take the grace of God to preach the word every week. But I want to talk about three seemingly disconnected subjects. And I want to tie them together. They're subjects that people talk about from time to time. Uh, Matter of fact, some of them we've heard much more talk about those in recent years. And the three subjects are this. Spiritual authority. Relational boundaries. And the essential nature of honor. How do those three things fit together? Spiritual authority, relational boundaries, and this thing called honor. That's what I want to talk about. Father, I ask for your grace this morning. Lord, that you would tie these things together. And Lord, we're asking that you would make us a healthy family. And Lord, that when people come in that are broken and bent that they would run smack dab into relational health and it would be attractive and it would pull them in and heal them but first lord heal us in jesus name amen all right so spiritual authority relational boundaries and honor uh look with me real quick here 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 15. I'm going to use this as kind of our, our text for authority and boundaries. Authority and boundaries. Uh, we've looked at this passage a little over, uh, several times over the last number of years. I'm just going to look at verse 15 and root it in this, this passage. Paul says, Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. So that's 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 15. Matter of fact, if you guys could get that up on the screen, that would be great. I don't know if you can. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 15. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. And so Paul says, I have limits on my life. And I've got to stay within the limitations God has assigned to me. He said, our hope is that as your faith continues to grow... Our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand. So what Paul is talking about is how do you expand your influence? It's really what he's getting to. Our sphere of activity. That word, those three words, sphere of activity, is one word in the Greek and it's kanon. K-A-N-N-O-N is the transliteration. It's where we get the word canon. Not as in canon as in the canon of scripture it's a measurement it's a it's a marker but it also has to do with boundaries and so Paul is saying that the the measurement around me this sphere the reach that I have of influence would expand but he's saying that there's a way to do that you don't assume to to have more influence than you do and that is a key 
If you assume more influence than has been delegated to you, either by God or by others, you're going to get yourself in trouble. If you think you have more influence in someone's life than you do, you will find yourself in conflict. And so we need to understand that there are, there are, there, you have a canon, you have a sphere of activity. And it's talking about a spiritual boundary line of where God has delegated to you authority. So when we talk about spiritual authority, what we're talking about is the root word of authority is author. Authorization is what authority is. Authority and power are different. We talked uh, several years ago, we did a series on the difference between spiritual authority and spiritual power. There are two distinct words in the Greek and two distinct concepts in the scripture. Uh, power is a force. It's, uh, there's several words, dunamis, energia. Uh, there's, there's several different words that are translated power, and it's the ability of God to do things with him that you couldn't do without him. That's the best definition I can give you. That's what the power of God is. Whether it's like we heard this morning out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14, a tongues and an interpretation, that is a spiritual gift. The, the Holy Spirit is the one that gives us power. Uh, Jesus said, tarry until you receive the gift of the Father. The Spirit shall come upon you and you will receive power. But then you, so that, that is the spiritual, that, that is the type of gift or the type of grace given to us by the Spirit of God. But then you have this other type of gift and the type of grace given to us by the Son of God. Jesus said, all authority has been given unto me, therefore go. The gifts that Jesus gives are gifts of authorization or authority. The gifts that the Spirit gives are gifts of power. We see these listed in 1 Corinthians 12. Tongues, interpretation, healing, miracles, uh, you know, signs and wonders, acts of power. The ability to do with God what you couldn't do without Him. If God's hand wasn't on you, you're not going to be able to heal people. But when His hand is on you, He says, you go heal the sick. He doesn't say, pray that I will. He said, you go do it. Because the power of God is on you. But the gifts that Jesus has are gifts of of authority. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. They're gifts of authority. They're, uh, they are authorized, they are deputized by heaven to operate in authority. And that is what Paul is talking about here. There is a sphere to your authority. There's a sphere of activity. Every one of us has been given authority, delegated authority by God. Now there is the authority given to you as a believer. Well, even before that, there's the authority delegated to the human race. There's human authority. Psalm chapter 8 says that uh, God, God hath made us a little lower than the Elohim and put everything under our feet. What, he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man you would visit him. You made him a little lower than the Elohim or the angels, depending on which translation. And you put everything under his feet. So that is delegated authority to the human race. You have authority. Then we have authority in Christ. Largely, our authority that we have as human beings has been abdicated through sin, and we give that over to the enemy. It's redeemed. We have it once again in Christ. First, or Ephesians chapter 1, it says, God has put everything under Jesus' feet. The last two verses of Ephesians chapter 1. So Psalm chapter 8 says he put it under man's feet, but man abdicated it. God put it under Jesus' feet, and then he says, comma, for the church. In Christ, we have our authority back. But there's a limit to the authority you have as a believer. And then you have authority according to assignment. Okay? So there's a, there's a graduated authority. You can expand your authority. Just like you can increase the power of God on your life by cooperating with God, you can increase the authority on your life by, by cooperating with God. You can expand the activity or your sphere of activity. And you should desire that. Not everybody operates in the same amount of power and not everybody operates in the same level of authority. It's like the difference between a gun, power, and a badge, authority. Not everybody has the same caliber and not everybody has the same rank. And there's faithfulness, what Paul is insinuating here in 2 Corinthians 10, our faithfulness qualifies us to grow in ranks, so to speak, or to expand the boundary lines of our sphere of activity. 
So what is authority? Authority is the authorization of heaven to rule, to impose your will. You say, whoa, wait a minute, pastor. Don't you mean impose God's will? That's the ideal. But the fact is, authority is the right to rule, and your thumbprint, your opinion is going to be inserted into that. That's why it's so crucial you're led by the Spirit. But the fact is, it's going to look like God, but it's also going to look like you because he chose you to rule over that area. And he has authorized you to rule, to exert your will, and to govern in that sphere. Every one of us has authority, and we are given, let me put it this way, in the kingdom, authority and responsibility go hand in hand. There is no responsibility without authority, and there is no authority without responsibility. Authority is not just, hey, you got authority, go tell people what to do. No, it's tied to an assignment, it's tied to a purpose, it's tied to a, ma- a mandate or, or a calling, it's tied to you having responsibilities. And the, fir- the, the base level of authority that's given to us as human beings is to self-govern our own lives. You have authority over your life to make decisions and to govern your life as you see fit. Now, if you are a wise believer and you are humble and teachable, that's an awesome thing. And if you aren't, that is a terrible thing. But it's still reality. You still have the right to rule your own life. So it's the authorization... Ultimately, only God has authority. Only God has innate authority. All other authority is delegated authority. Only God has authority in and of himself. Everyone else has delegated authority. God is sovereign. He is the sovereign ruler. He has all authority, and he could dictate every little thing in the universe, but he does not. God is so sovereign, he is secure in appearing not so much. By delegating that authority to us. And a lot of times we blame God for our own poor decisions. And we're saying, well, God, why'd you allow this? And he's saying, I didn't. I delegated it to you and you made a mess of it. Invite me in through this thing called prayer. And I will fix it with you, not for you, with you. you got to cooperate with me and begin to apply my principles and govern your life so that my kingdom will begin to break in and bring some order to the chaos you created by your own poor decisions. Now, usually he doesn't say all that, but that's what he means. So authority is the right to rule over your life. So relational boundaries are the, is the understanding that, okay, there is a place where my authority ends and your, yours begins and vice versa. In marriage. See, we want to, <laughs> as men, we want to really talk, submit, submission to husband's authority, woman. Yeah. How, how's that working for you, sir? Yeah. <laughs> There, there is a biblical basis for male headship in the marriage, but it's servant leadership. And even then, my authority ends at, there's a certain place my authority ends and my wife's authority begins. And I can't dictate to her how she runs her personal life. And if I try, I am going to introduce frustration into both our personal lives and our mutual relationship. Because I'm assuming responsibility for something I have no authority over. So I have to recognize boundaries, fence lines. That my wife and I decided in the spirit, we're saying, hey, you know what? Let's do life together. You buy that patch of ground. Let's, let's, move, let's move on the same ground together and our yards butt up against each other. And we do life together. We trade tomatoes from our gardens and we're doing life together, you know. But she still has to govern her life and I have to govern mine. And if I try to control her and impose my will into the areas that's been delegated to her, that is not good. Because I'm going to come up against one of two things. I'm either going to get real resistance and it's going to be conflict. Or she's going to abdicate some of the authority God's delegated to her. And she's going to begin to atrophy and waste away while I reach in and take more ground than I should. And now I'm responsible not only to weed my garden and mow my lawn, I'm responsible to weed her garden and mow her lawn. 
Well, she sits in the house and just wastes away because she has nothing to do. There's a lot of people who never develop because the people out of love are actually inserting themselves in their life and trying to govern them for them. So if I, does that make sense? If I take responsibility for somebody else's life, if I'm trying harder than they are to help them have a responsible, productive life, we are having, that's a problem, okay? I can't try harder than they can. So here's the deal. Over the areas of my life that I have authority, that are part of my sphere of activity, is how Paul puts it, that has been delegated to me by God, my personal life, I also am the head of a household. I'm also the pastor of a church. I have other relationships. So there are different spheres of authority that I have. Some of you, you have all kinds of different uh, places where you have authority. And you need to need to keep two things in mind. A, you need to fill your space. You need to govern it well. You cannot afford to have a, you can't afford to have 15 acres of land, but you're just mowing a half acre and living and just letting the weeds grow on the other. Because supernature hates a vacuum. And if you don't govern it, something else will. The enemy will come in. He will attract people into your life to begin to get into your space and use your resources for their ends. And it'll invite a lot of troubling things into your life. I don't know if that makes, I hope I'm being clear. We need to fill our space. I can't afford as a pastor to, to, you know, okay, let's face it. There are things that go on at Heartland that aren't my style. But I ain't dying on that hill. It's not a moral thing. It's not a big deal. It's just, you know, it it doesn't have to be my way. But there's other things that I can't afford not to address that. Because we can't have another, we can't have another will taking the, the spot of leadership at the top of the pyramid in this church. Now I know that sounds very um, authoritarian, but the fact is we have to fill our space. We have to exercise our will. Now, we can delegate those things, but we're ultimately still responsible, and we need to fill our space. So you need to, know, you need to extend yourself and fill your space. The next thing you need to understand is don't get beyond your space. Stay in your lane. Don't try to take responsibility for things outside of your space, because here's the deal. If you don't have an assignment for that space, then you don't have authority for that space. And if you don't have authority, you don't have anything to govern in that space. If you can't, so you, you may not have an assignment, you may simply have concern. And that's a good thing. I've got adult children. I told someone this morning, I was looking at a newborn and I said, oh, isn't she cute? I said, does she sleep all night? Yeah, pretty much, you know, she'll just eat and then go back to sleep. I just goes right back to sleep. I said, my kids stayed up all day and screamed all night. I said, I'm so grateful they're adults now. I said, if they're still screaming at night, I don't know, because most of them don't live with me. You know, they might be screaming at their place, but that's on them. They're still my children. I still care, but I have to come to terms with, I don't have the same level of authority that I had in them. In their life. And I need to realize that because if I still try to exercise authority over my 29-year-old son that I exercised over his life at 14, he is going to be frustrated, and so am I. (laughs) Amen. Most likely, we wouldn't even have a relationship, and that would be my fault because I'm being dysfunctional, and I'm mistaking assignment I'm mistaking my concern for an assignment from God. Now, if I don't have authority, no, so I'm still concerned. And that, that's a good thing. I shouldn't be so, well, I don't care what happens to him. Now he's out of my hands. <laughs> that, that, that's a heart problem, okay? That's a whole other sermon. But if I really care, but I don't have the authority, what can I, what do I appeal to? I appeal to concern, not assignment. And I have to, I can no longer give him commands. I can give him counsel. Two different things. Because counsel means I can say to him, hey, buddy, take it or leave it. I'm just telling you, I'm concerned for you. But I'm not going to break relationship. I'm not going to uh, demand that he takes my counsel, my counsel, which is really a command because you've got to play ball with me and, and do what I say. 
that, that's getting dysfunctional. That's, get, that's going to muddy the waters, and I'm either going to atrophy my son so he occupies a lot less space in, in this world than he should, and he's never going to live up to his potential, and then I'm having to deal with my yard and his, and I'm all frazzled and freaked out. Or we just break relationship, and I don't, I'm not concerned. The, the healthy thing is we need to transition. Okay, you're, you're out from underneath my authority. I can't give you commands, but what I can give you is counsel. But counsel means take it or leave it. I'm still connected to you. I still love you. Now, that may mean that he may be needing some counsel on some things that are really out there, and I may have to say, you know what, I'm, we're going to back off a relationship a little bit. I can't, I can't be in relationship with you at the level I could if you weren't out, you know, robbing banks. He's not, by the way. Uh, but, you know, uh, but it's, you know, those kind of things. We have to realize where are the boundary lines, but we need to understand that when people... When we don't have authority in an area, the best we can do is give counsel. If we don't understand that, then what we do is we appeal to not counsel but manipulation. See, what we do is we manipulate people into taking our counsel. We use fear and flattery, threats and bribes, bully them or cajole them into doing what we think they should do. And we're pulling the strings, the little puppet strings, trying to get them to do what we think they should do because we're doing it for their own good because that would be the best thing to do. The problem is if they're doing it because you're threatening and bribing and pulling all the strings, they'll only continue to do it if you are pulling the, the strings and threatening and bribing. And it is unsustainable for both of you. And you're actually keeping them from their destiny. And this is where honor comes in. Honor, we, we, we've heard a lot of talk about this phrase. It was interesting, about 10 years ago, all of a sudden all these books started coming out about honor. Whenever you see that happen, you can rest assured Christ is speaking to his church. Again and again it says in the book of Revelation, let he who has ears hear what the Spirit would say to his churches. In other words, if you're hearing it, there, there were Word of Faith books coming out. There were, there were uh, different, different streams were coming out about honor. And it's because there was a new emphasis by the Spirit of God. And we should tune our ear and say, okay, why is God speaking of that? What is honor? Honor is respecting the individual and their, it's the recognition and the respect for the authority to self-govern. I'm looking at their life and I may not agree with their lifestyle, but I'm going to respect their right to govern themselves. Doesn't mean I say it's okay that if they're making dumb decisions. I'm not going to denigrate their dumb decisions, but I'm also not going to talk them into not making the right decisions because they're the only one that can decide themselves out of the fixes they decided themselves into. And so I have to empower them by honoring them to make both good and bad decisions and out of concern give them good counsel but leave, leave it to them to make the right decisions. I'm not going to manipulate them. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so it's, this, is, this is hugely important because what happens is a lot of us do relationships. It's like a, an invisible maze. We're trying to feel our way through relationships well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been confused in relational conflict? Anybody? Anybody ever been confused like, whoa, how did I get into this? What's going on here? I, did, I, did I overstep my boundaries? Did I not fulfill my place? You know, what, what's going on? Here? Man, I just stepped on a landmine I didn't even know was there. And boy, I, you know, I think their, their reaction was a little overboard. And hey, what are we dealing with here? What we're talking about this morning would solve a whole lot of that. It's Beginning to understand spiritual authority is the God-given right to rule your life. And God will honor your decisions. Even if you decide to go to hell, God will honor that. Because God is a very empowering leader. He'll give you the counsel. He'll give you the opportunity to apply it. But you get to decide and God will back your decisions because he has delegated authorization, authority to you to make decisions. You would be wise to take his counsel, but you can reject it. And he will honor your decision and he will back the consequences of those decisions. 
And we would be wise to do the same. Rather than rescuing people from the consequences of their bad decisions. I think I said it last week, but I used to tell parents all the time, if the prodigal son's father would have given him a MasterCard, he would have never come home. When he lived in relationship with the father in an honoring way and he was working on the family farm, he had both rights and responsibilities and he was doing his part and he had the responsibilities, but he also had rights. I get to, I get, I have all this. And then one day he decided, I don't want the dad, my dad's counsel. I want, I wish you were dead, dad. But since you're not, how about selling off some of your land and giving my inheritance now? And he left home. And there was this breach in the relationship. And it wasn't until he'd humbled himself and ran out of money and then humbled himself and came back that that relationship could be mended. Now, the father's heart was always for him. The father's heart was always open. But the father didn't chase him down and take upon him the responsibility to make sure his son wasn't out doing the, the dumb things he was doing. Because that wouldn't have done any good. If the dad was the one that was always saving him from making really bad decisions, then the dad would have to do that for the rest of his life. Because consequences are the built-in nanny <laughs> that God, the nanny God has built into life to spank us and to teach us and to instruct us. And if we rescue people from the consequences of their bad decisions, there's no motivation they don't have any motivation to change. They can have their cake and eat it too. And so we have to let our kids crash. We have to let other people in relationship. And so in honoring relationship, I realize, okay, I have authority here. I have to rule my life according to the word. And there are boundaries to that. There's a place where mine begins and mine ends. I, I worked for a guy one time, and he, he had decided, this, this was in a ministry, and he had decided he was going to make some new rules. And, and uh, some of them were even clothing rules. There was a, uh, they toyed with making a rule about women not being able to wear pants. And I knew, well, I guess I'm resigning. And it didn't even have to do with whether I agreed with the rules or not. I didn't agree with that, obviously. Uh, my wife has pants on this morning. We, uh, she wears the pants. In the, no, I'm just kidding. And, uh, we, we have, you know, there's, when we have, uh, it doesn't matter if I agreed with him or not about the decisions. What the problem was is he was reaching into my home across the boundary lines of where his authority ended and my began, and he began to reach in and trying to make decisions for my household, and that would be unhealthy. It wasn't the decision, it was the fact that he was making them for me. Now, he had, he had to run his ministry the way he thought, and that's fine, but then in a healthy relationship, I say, okay, those are the rules to play here, and I honor your right to do so. And now you must honor my right to extract myself from the game because I don't play that way. And when we have clear boundaries and we have, we, we have, we understand authority, the right to rule. We understand where the boundary lines are because those boundaries give clarity. And we understand honor, that we honor one another's right to choose. Then we don't have to get in all these weird conflicts. It's just like, hey, you know what? I realize that I'm not going to be able to I can't be in a relationship like that. So I'm just going to, I'm going to back out and we're not going to be able to operate in this area. If that's the way you need to do it, that's fine. But that's not how I can do it. And we can rule our life. Often what happens is, is we have these, these shadowy kind of boundary lines underneath the surface. And we're wondering why there's this conflict and this tension because people are overstepping their boundaries or we're abdicating ours or vice versa. They're abdicating theirs and we're overstepping ours and we're getting out. It gets real foggy and real muddy waters and there's conflict that begins to happen. It's like, uh, let, let me try to give some examples. So you got the example of a, uh, a boss who starts to make decisions for, like I, like I just said, I remember back in the 70s, the shepherding movement. Anybody remember that? There was a lot of teaching on authority. and It was wonderful teaching. Some of those teachers, I still read their material today. They're some of my heroes, tremendously insightful teachings, but they took them too far. And pretty soon you had churches applying this stuff on authority, and it was called the shepherding movement because what the idea was is there's spiritual authority. There is 
a shepherd, a pastor who is, has spiritual authority over your life. And pretty soon people were submitting requests to go on vacation and can I buy a new car? And he's dictating their finances. That is dysfunctional. You may ask me opinion on that and I'm going to send you to someone else. You don't want to look to me for that kind of decision stuff. I, that's not my strong suit. I, there's people in the congregation that I go to for those kind of things. I won't say your name or you'll have people calling you today. But, that, you know, you don't want somebody else making the decisions for you. That is dysfunctional. It, it, it goes back to a misunderstanding of the boundary lines of authority. You have the God-given right and the God-given responsibility to govern your own life according to the word of God. Now, when that begins to intersect with other people's, then you've got to figure out, okay, where are the boundary lines of authority here? And some personalities are very strong personalities. They'll run right over you, and pretty soon they're making decisions for you, and you may be more passive, and you find yourself being run, or vice versa. And what you need to understand is there's boundary lines. These are decisions I need to make. I'll get back to you on that. I need to determine whether that's going to be right for my life. And that is healthy. And so we need to understand what, what are the, the overarching assignments on people's lives. I said a couple weeks ago, there was a young woman that we're having to deal with some things in her life and she would come up and worship and finally it wasn't that she was doing anything anybody else wasn't doing up here in worship but she was it was because of some of the other things in her life I didn't want her up here worshiping because of some of the frankly rebellion in her life and so we talked and talked and talked behind the scenes a number of times and finally I just said you're not allowed to come up here and worship anymore until we can work through some of these things and they left the church then we had a special meeting, and here she came in, and she's up dancing up front. And I went up to her, and I said, hey, you know, man, it's good to see you. Give her a hug. I said, but I told you, you can't be up here and worship. And she said, well, you're, you're not my pastor anymore. I said, when you're in this house, I am. Because this is, this is my assignment. And it's not some power trip. It's that I just can't allow that, and I can't allow an expression of that in this house. I want it to be safe for people. And so we need to have, now, if I went to, Wherever she's attending and she's up front dancing, it's none of my business. And I would be like, glory to God. Hallelujah. It's not my business. But here, I don't have a choice. We need to know our assignment. You are, if you are a parent, you and your spouse, if you have one, have to govern your home. And you don't allow things that you don't agree with in that home. You need to govern it well. You need to govern it in an honoring way. As your kids get older, you need to recognize their right to govern their own heart. And you give them counsel. But also, you under, they need to understand that there are consequences to governing contrary to the word of God. And I'm going to let them happen to you. And sometimes I'll be the avenue through which they arrive. You know, We're going to provide some consequences. But that's healthy. That's healthy relationships. And so we need to have those boundary lines. Let me read through a couple things real quick. And hopefully I've been clear. It's a little bit, uh, sometimes these things can be a little uh, muddy to talk about. Authority and responsibility go hand in hand. Authority is necessary to govern. I can have concern without responsibility, but that demands I have favor in order to influence. Let me say it again. I may have concern without responsibility. If I have concern for something that's outside of my right to govern it, then that demands that I have favor with that individual in order to influence them. Uh, uh, group number two at the school tonight, we're going to be teaching on, uh, on a subject that's going to kind of bounce off of this. This is preparatory. If we don't understand this, we're not going to understand that. That in order for me to influence somebody, I have to have favor. If I'm in disfavor with them, if people hate me, then I'm just, I'm like Peter, I cut their ear off. They're not going to listen to me. Okay, so I've got to operate in an honoring way. If I will honor them, then I have favor, which gives me a platform of influence. They can still take it or leave it. But that demands a different skill set than it does as a parent telling your kids what to do. And here's the catch, mom and dad. If you don't lay the groundwork for favor when you can give them commands, you won't have it when you have to give them counsel. 
So you better build the groundwork for favor when they're little and they have to obey you. If they are only obeying you because they have to, then you just need to pray that that changes before they can start making their own decisions. Because if they're only obeying you because they have to, they won't listen to your counsel when they don't have to. And so it demands that we develop favor with people so that we're no longer speaking from a position of authority. We're speaking from a position of influence that's been granted by favor. And that only comes when you, if you aren't being honoring towards someone, you will have no authority in their life. If you don't honor people, if you're dishonoring to them and, and you diminish them and talk to them in a, you know, just in a denigrating way, you're not going to have any influence in their life. There are a lot of people, man, we, we have all this concern, but we have no influence. That's a bummer. In order to speak into places we don't have authority, and we, we, I hope you have relationships where you have concern without authority. If your only concern is with where you have authority, I'm not sure I want to be your friend. We need to have those relationships that we're carrying that concern, but we're, we're, we're speaking from a place of honor and concern, and we love them so that we can have a platform of influence. Does it make sense? The only, okay, so I can have concern without responsibility, but that demands I have favor in order to influence. The only other option is manipulation. Responsibility implies accountability for the outcome. Responsibility implies accountability for the outcome. So in the areas where you are responsible, the areas you have authority, you will be held to account by God for the outcomes in those situations. You will answer for what happened under your leadership. doesn't mean everything's your fault, but by the best of your ability that you are exercising the authority given to you because you're going to give an account for that. You will not give an account for what's outside of your responsibility. But a lot of us live like we will. We take responsibility for things outside of our authority and we, we really, it really causes a lot of problems. I want you to think about that word responsibility. It's response, response, ability. I have the ability to respond. You see how honoring that is when you treat someone like they're responsible? You are perfectly capable of responding in a right way to the options at hand. I don't have to relieve you of that responsibility. You are not such a tiny, ignorant person that you can't make good decisions. I'm going to honor you to make good decisions. I'm going to love you in the middle of it, even if you make bad ones, but I'm going to honor you. I'm going to recognize, I'm going to acknowledge, and I'm going to believe the best about you that you are fully capable of making the right decisions. I'm not going to take the boundary lines of my responsibility and authority and move it into yours and start to make decisions for you because that's a recipe for stress for me and atrophy for you or conflict, one of the two. You're going to resent it or you're going to love it because you can live irresponsible while I take responsibility for your life. And that's not good for you. So if I take responsible th- for things, responsibility for things I have no authority over, I have to revert to manipulation to govern it. I flatter and scare, guilt, and bribe them into line. The strings of manipulation must be pulled to get them to do what I think best. And even if their behavior is right, the motive behind it is lacking and will not be sustained without me continuing to pull the strings of manipulation. Nothing has really changed. Concern is not the same as assuming responsibility. It is carrying a burden for that area, but must be engaged through honor, favor, and the influence that comes from it. To assume responsibility for areas outside of my assignment is dangerous and invites demonic conflict. It's one of the ways that the enemy gets in. There's conflict. There's resentment. Even if it isn't spoken, there's these undertones of resentment. And we can solve that by pulling ourselves back within our boundary line and honoring people to be the powerful person that they are. And not trying to relieve them of their power. Because we think it's best for them. I have authority over my relationships. If I, I get to choose if I'm going to continue to participate. That's the way we need to look at it. I have authority over my relationships. And if one gets unhealthy, I have the authority to choose if I continue to participate in that relationship. We need to do that with our heart engaged 
but to communicate clearly, hey, you know what, we're going to have to, we're going to have to withdraw. I, one of my kids, uh, they were living at home and I said, you got to find another place to live. We've got a great relationship now. We didn't have one so much when they lived at home. And it wasn't just, you know, I mean, there were there things they should change. Yeah, they're, you know, they're young. There's things I should have changed. They had a better excuse. I'm old. I'm gray. But the fact is, we had to change the nature of the relationship because they, we just, there, there couldn't be two heads of the house. So I said, I love you. Let's do lunch. Let's do breakfast. Just find another place to live. You got a week. And uh, we, we have a great relationship. And I'm proud of that child, which we'll rename nameless. But I'm, I'm proud of them. But we had to change the dynamics of the relationship. I had to say, I'm not going to participate on this level. I am not going to feed you and house you when the relationship is like this. You need to feed and house yourself. Then we can operate at that level. Hallelujah. God is good. Clarity on this empowers us to choose, to communicate parameters and empowers the other to decide if they will continue under those clear parameters. Recognizing our role, responsibilities, and the parameters of our responsibilities enables us to empower others by honoring their right to choose for themselves. If I fail to honor their right to choose, I will ultimately forfeit the favor to influence them. If you try to take responsibility for someone else's life, ultimately you'll lose favor. Because eventually they're not going to like the decisions you made for them. And you'll be like, what? Man, aren't you grateful I've been going through all this? Well, you shouldn't have been going through all that in the first place. You invited that. I'll, I'll feel bad for you, but not too bad. All right? So, stand so you know I'm going to quit. It's 12.03. Honor empowers. It respects the boundary lines of God by which he delegates authority. It honors the individual's awesome right to self-govern. It also holds people accountable to, over, to not to overstep those boundary lines in an attempt to usurp control of our lives, be it through guilt, flattery, bribes, or threats. Honor also limits us. It recognizes the authority of others and refuses to overstep those lines through manipulation. Honor is always a two-way street. If you're in a relationship where the person is always wanting to talk to you about honor but isn't honoring you, that's a sign you might want to kind of move the fence line a little bit in that relationship. If you work for somebody or you have a pastor that always wants to talk about how you need to honor authority but he doesn't honor you, I know, I'm, I could undermine my own ministry right now. If you have a passion, you need to really question whether you want to be under that leadership. Because honor is always a two-way street. Honor limits us. It recognizes the authority of others and refuses to overstep those lines. Honor is a two-way street. It is crucial to boundaries and one cannot be discussed without the other. So the bottom line is, uh, let me just say this. Honor is the opposite of rebellion. It bestows respect on the rightful ruler of any realm due to their position. Ironically, we can be rebellious towards our adult children because we're not recognizing their authority. We're not honoring their authority. You can be rebellious towards somebody that works for you because you're not honoring the parameters of their authority. Rebellion is anti-authority and that has to go both ways, up the ladder and down the ladder. This sentiment extends to the simplest of relationships. We must honor our children respecting their right to choose while teaching them that, that they will govern the consequences of those decisions and sometimes we're the provider of the consequences and this undercuts manipulation. Manipulation is actually rebellion, a usurping of someone's authority. It is a political spirit, choosing our behavior based upon what they, we think it will elicit in them, rather than this is the right thing to do. I'm not going to gate. Life is not a chess game. I'm going to do this, so they'll do this, and then I'll do this, and you're really unhealthy if you think that way. It's a lot of work. Just do what's right and honor people, and honor their desire to. They're, they're right to make their own decisions. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I ask, God, that you would open the eyes of our understanding. If you would, just put your hands on your head. Father, just open the eyes of our understanding. We ask that you would teach us to be wise in relationships. Lord, that we would be a place that honors people, that empowers them, that takes risks by empowering people who don't always make the best decisions. We thank you for it, Lord.
Lord, teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.